We're in Acts chapter 2, verses 1, and we are going to um, prayerfully make it through verse 13. Um, No small chapter, Uh, no small chapter, and so I'm just going to start by reading it, kind of let the cat out of the bag, and then we'll talk about it, all right? It'll be on the screen behind me if you don't have uh, your copy of God's Word. Verse 1 of Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one of them heard Uh, was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene and visitors of Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. In verse 12. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. Yeah, here we go, right? And I know what some of you are thinking. You're like, I brought friends. Awesome. Well, you knew where we'd be today because we preach through books of the Bible if you're new. And so we're making our way through Acts. And particularly through Acts chapter 2, we're going to spend three weeks talking about this. Okay? And, and, and like Sam said, Acts chapter 2 is a fascinating passage. It is fascinating, and I, I think oftentimes we underplay or, or, or undercommunicate the significance of what is actually taking place here, right? Uh, Acts chapter 2, for those of you maybe who come from a Pentecostal background, or maybe you're a Pentecostal and you're here, like, this gets you really excited, you know? Like, you're really amped up. For those of you who are Presbyterians or maybe from that background, you're going, what in the world's going to happen here, Okay. And listen, a little bit of my background, I come from a largely Pentecostal movement, okay, growing up in that, and then I went to a seminary that by and large is a cessationist school, meaning that they believe that the gifts or these miraculous gifts such as tongues have ceased, okay? So I went from that to that, so that means I am very confused, Okay. So whether you find yourself in the Pentecostal side, you find yourself on the Presbyterian side, I'm probably going to disappoint both of you in this talk, all right? But we faithfully want to go through and unpack Acts chapter 2 and examine the scriptures. What does the word of God say is taking place here? Why is this so pivotal for the church? Why is it so pivotal for us as even individual uh, believers? And there are a lot of questions raised by Acts chapter 2, right? Probably even as I read it, questions began to go off in your mind, right? And, and I, I know the one main question, and I'll get there. But the main question is not the main question that you're thinking. The main question of Acts chapter 2 is actually in the text. Look at it at verse 12. It says, and they were all amazed and perplexed, right, like we all are, saying to one another, what does this mean? That is the main question in Acts chapter 2. What does this mean? And I'm going to get there. 
But I want us to first start with a couple other questions, right, that I think are going on in, in, in our minds and in our hearts. And the first one is this, is, is right out of the gate, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived. Why did the Holy Spirit come on the day of Pentecost? Why is it that God, in his sovereignty, saw fit that the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, would fall on this particular day? Well, I want to start by explaining what Pentecost, the word Pentecost, actually means. The word Pentecost and the day of Pentecost is actually important in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The word Pentecost is just a word that means 50th, okay? It means 50th, right? Some of you Pentecostals are like, what? I thought it was synonymous with Holy Spirit. Well, it is in a way, but that's just what the word means, 50th. And it means that it is 50 days or actually seven weeks or seven Sabbaths after the Passover. So 50 days after the Passover in the Old Testament, right, that the Jews would celebrate, came the day of Pentecost. And so prior to that, it was also known as, as the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Harvest. And so in the Old Testament, when you see the day of Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Harvest, here's what would happen 50 days after Passover. They would take the harvest and they would celebrate the goodness of God. They would bring it all in. Because what happens three days after Passover is what's known as the Feast of First Fruits. Okay? These numbers are going to make a little more sense as we continue on. So at three days after Passover, that you would see these buds begin to sprout, and so they would hold a, a celebration and really offer to God these first fruits, right? And so they would have a feast three days after Passover. And then another 47 days later, they would have the Feast of Weeks or Harvest, known as the Day of Pentecost. And so why would God choose to send the Holy Spirit on the Day of Pentecost? One, it was just a joyous ruckus of a celebration, celebrating what God has provided. And one of the things I want you to notice in your Bible, if you have the translation I have, the English Standard Version, you'll notice it says that, that when the day of Pentecost arrived. But if you wind it back a little bit, and the Bible in the New Testament was written, predominantly, is written in Greek, okay? You look at that phrase, when the day of Pentecost, there, that word is fully arrived, when the day of Pentecost fully arrived, and what Luke, the writer of Acts, is trying to communicate here is that the Old Testament day of Pentecost was a celebration of the harvest that God brings. Now, Pentecost has fully arrived. How? Because the spirit of the living God has come, and there is going to be a greater harvest than anyone could ever imagine. In fact, on the day of Pentecost, this day of Pentecost, we'll read later in, in about two weeks, we're going to see that 3,000 souls were added to the church. You want to talk about a harvest that literally in one day, 3,000 people. So the church went from 120 to 3,120. We thought we had facility issues, right? Like imagine that in one day, there's this amazing harvest. And Luke is saying that. Luke is going, listen, this is the shadow fulfilled. This is the true harvest that the, the day of Pentecost in the Old Testament was pointing towards. It's this ultimate gathering in of God's people to himself. Right? So it is this picture. God is purposeful in sending his spirit on the day of Pentecost, right? On this festival of, of harvest or gathering, all right? And then, two, also just logistically, there would have been a massive crowd there. There would have been, as, as, as Luke says here, people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue gathered here to celebrate Pentecost. And so God says, My spirit is going to fall. 
in this crowd. My spirit is going to fall in this moment, and I'm going to show you and bring in a harvest like you can't even imagine, but only comes through my spirit. And so that's why Pentecost. That's why Pentecost is so important. It's so critical to us, right? And, and, and so that answers the first question. Now, the next question I know you're asking, you're just wanting me to get to, right? Why the upper room? Why the, I'm just kidding. Why, what are tongues, right? Let's just get to it, Kyle. Let's just talk about it, okay? What in the world is going on here where it says that people are filled with the Holy Spirit and they begin to speak in other tongues, right? This is where we all begin to sweat. Or if you're a Pentecostal, you're ready to run the aisles, okay? Listen, I grew up in it. No shame in the game, okay? Listen, what is happening here in Acts 2 is that known languages are being spoken by people who don't speak those known languages. Now, oftentimes, Acts chapter 2 is a place where people will point and will talk about tongues, a given language by God, and go, see, tongues are always known languages. The book of Acts and Acts chapter 2 is not the only place that the Bible speaks about tongues, Okay? This is not the only place. And so if we can for just a minute, and this is not going to be a full discourse on tongues, we're going to walk through that more as we journey through the book of Acts. But it is important that we understand tongues as the way the Bible lays it out in two fashions. One here in Acts chapter 2, I believe wholeheartedly, is known languages. Known languages that people are given utterance to speak by the power of the Holy Spirit that other men and women affirm. That is my known tongue and language, and I know he or she doesn't know it. But there are other places in Scripture, 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14, that also talk about tongues. This is Paul writing. And particularly in, Acts, or in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul speaks about tongues and sets it alongside prophecy. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, the tongues or the tongues speech that Paul is talking about is not a known language. It is not a known language. In fact, it's a different word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 14 from what, from what Luke uses in Acts chapter 2. For the word language, he uses the word dialecto. Dialecto, you know what word we get from that class, right? Doesn't take a rocket scientist. Dialect. They're speaking my language. They're speaking my dialect. However, there is a tongue given by God that is unknown to men and women, that is not an earthly or a human language. 1 Corinthians 14, I just want to go through a couple of these to set it up. For one who speaks, and remember he's, he's positioning it alongside prophecy. Prophecy meaning human language going forth, right, to edify and build up the body. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. That is not talking about a human language. That is talking about what Paul continues in 12, 13, and 14 to talk about as a heavenly language. Next verse in 1 Corinthians. He says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. <laughs> like, this is Paul, okay? Now, for some of you, um, maybe you were in traditions where you grew up, you just like, like, tongues is like this mindless babble. Tongues are really for the naive or kind of the, 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 the unschooled in the scriptures, if you will, right? I bring their attention to this. This is Paul, right? He wrote the letter Romans. He's not uneducated. He's very bright, okay? And he says this, I speak in tongues more than all of you. He's saying this to the church. Nevertheless, right? We've got to keep going because most Pentecostals are charismatic. Stop right there. And they go, see? 
Let's all get behind Paul. Nevertheless, in church, so in the gathering, in the community, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than the 10,000 words in a tongue. So Paul is saying in a corporate setting, and much like what's taking place here, right, he's going, I would rather speak five intelligible human language words other than speak 10,000 languages that only God knows, right? Because it doesn't help anybody. It doesn't benefit anyone. It's not beneficial. It doesn't edify the body. Next, 1 Corinthians. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, so, so very, very, very similar to what we have potentially going on here in Acts chapter 2, okay? You have outsiders and you have potentially some unbelievers. You do have unbelievers in Acts chapter 2. Will they not say that you are out of your minds? Okay. Now track with me. Track with me here some, some reasoning, some thinking about this. So if someone comes into a church and there is a human language spoken, right? An identifiable human language spoken. And we have other languages that are spoken here, right? Spanish, Portuguese, French, okay? Mandarin, Vietnamese. Like we have other languages here. Would all people, go back to that verse for me if you can't. Would all people actually be able to go, or would all people go, that's foolishness? No, there's somebody that's going to go, no, that's my native tongue, right? Whether it's in the community or outside of the community. There's going to be someone that goes, wait, 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 I understand that because that's my language. I get that because they're speaking the same dialect that I speak. However, what Paul is saying here is that when it's just tongues, meaning heavenly language spoken out loud, right, improperly, without an interpretation, people are going to go, you're out of your minds. But notice, if there is a dialect of a human language spoken at church, think about how you would respond. If someone was speaking Portuguese or someone was speaking Italian or French or Mandarin or whatever, I don't know about you, but there would be beauty in that. Right? And we've had that, right? Where, where maybe a song goes out, not, not in a tongue, right? But in a different language, right? Where someone will speak, sing, Julio sings a song here every once in a while in Spanish, and it's this beautiful thing. Like if people peer in and they hear other human languages, they're probably going to go, man, that church is really diverse. Man, that church is really a beautiful representation of the body. Man, those are really intelligent people. Not, man, they're out of their minds speaking those human languages. But Paul goes, no, that happens when these heavenly languages, when these other languages roll out and there's no interpretation, when they're done, out of order. And some of us have been part and seen that. And so what I want to say clearly is that in Acts chapter 2, in other places in Scripture, there are known languages that God gives by the power of his Holy Spirit to go forth. And that is what we see. In other places, like 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, I'm convinced that these are unknown languages. And listen to me. Is that debated? It is. Is that something we're okay wrestling with and wrestling through? Absolutely. Here at the Park Church, this is what we call an open-handed issue, meaning that we're not going to break fellowship or unity over those kind of things. That the reality, whether you believe in unknown or known languages, meaning in tongues, right? That's not going to break fellowship. It's not central to salvation. However, we should examine the scriptures mindfully, right? Prayerfully and say, God, what are you writing here? What are you saying in the pages of scripture about the Holy Spirit? And so that is the framework. And listen, 
I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe in speaking in tongues that it is still for today, that none of the gifts God has originated through the power of the Holy Spirit have ceased. However, what we see oftentimes is an unbiblical operation of them. And one of the reasons I went to that seminary is because I wanted to see what the Bible said about these gifts. And I wanted to pray and ask the Holy Spirit for him to lead and for him to guide. I wanted to be open-handed and open-minded to say, God, I want to see your power come, but I want to see it how you send it. I want to see it in your fullness, not manufactured, not manipulated by, by some man from a stage in a microphone with a hanky, okay? I want to see the power of God and the fullness of God, and I want to know it through the pages of scriptures. And so that's what we're on this faithful journey together doing, okay? And so that's what we see here in terms of tongues, but that still doesn't answer the question in verse 12. What does this mean? What does this day of Pentecost where the Holy Spirit comes for the first time and fills believers, what does it mean? This is the question. This is what we're looking for the answer. Not, not what's tongues, not what's going on here with, with fire and a wind, even though that points to something that I'll talk about here. Because listen, if you, if you come from a certain perspective on this, maybe you, you'll read this and you'll get kind of lost in, in, in the trees or in the weeds, if you will. Right? And you'll think and you'll read, okay, listen, when the Holy Spirit comes, these 120, they all spoke in other tongues. Therefore, we all must speak in tongues. Or maybe you'll go that the gift of the Holy Spirit is always accompanied by tongues. That is not Acts chapter 2. That is not what the Word of God says. I'm not saying, again, that people do not have the gift of speaking in tongues. I'm not saying it's not for today. I'm just saying that's not Acts chapter 2. And so listen, if we, we will quickly go sideways if we make the gifts primary here in this passage. What is primary here in this passage, Acts chapter 2, is that the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, was given to his people for the first time. That what we've read up until this point was a calling by our God, by Jesus, to say, wait, pray, and seek. Ask for the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is going to come, and it's going to come in what word? Power. Power. Power for what reason? And Jesus doesn't leave us hanging. He says, power so that you will be my witness. See, back to Acts chapter 2. You see, one of the reasons I think also that it fell on the day of Pentecost, and Luke makes this marker, is to inseparably link the power or the coming of the Holy Spirit to the cross of Jesus Christ. You cannot separate the power of the Holy Spirit from the cross of Christ. That's point number one. What does this mean? This means that the power of the Holy Spirit is meant to point back to the redemption we have in Jesus Christ. When was Jesus crucified? On Passover. Here's where these festivals are going to make a little bit more sense for you. He was crucified on Passover. He rose. How many days later? Right? Come to Easter service. You'll find out, all right? Three days later, right? On the Feast of First Fruits, Jesus rose, and he was with them another 43 days until what? Right? This, this 10 days, actually another 33 days, right? This, this in-between 10-day period, and then on the day of harvest, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fell. It fell on Pentecost. I'm convinced, so it throws you back to Passover, right? Everything, all of these festivals were meant to point back to Passover, point to back 
point to show back God is a God who redeems. He's a God who saves. And it's no different when he sends God the Holy Spirit. It's meant to point back to the salvation and redemption that has come in Jesus Christ. The power of the Holy Spirit did not fall for power's sake. It fell to give you and I power to witness to Jesus, to witness to the salvation that has come. I can remember, again, not to knock my childhood. It was a beautiful, I grew up in the church. I love the church. But I remember such a priority on being filled and being baptized with the Holy Spirit, right? And you'll receive this power and you'll get this power. And at some point, I remember asking the question, why? Power for what? And nobody really had a good answer. Power for power's sake? Right? If that's the case, check it out. It's just no greater than the cheer, right? We've got spirit. Yes, we do. We've got spirit. How about? Like, it's no greater than that. Like, we've got the Spirit. We've got the Spirit. No, you have the Spirit and you have power to witness for a purpose to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Make no mistake about it. Why did the Holy Spirit come? Why is there power that comes alongside of it to make much of Jesus? I mean, listen, you can say I'm baptized in the Holy Ghost. I'm filled with the Holy Ghost. Listen, if you haven't led one person to Christ, you're full of something. It's just not the Holy Spirit. Why? Because a fullness in the Holy Spirit will always lead to a greater empowerment to the witness of Jesus Christ. Now hear me. I also grew up with people who were full of the Holy Spirit. A hunger and a thirst. A true embodiment of what we see in Acts, in the book of Acts. And I can tell you, it was one of the most beautiful pictures of witnessing to Jesus that I've ever seen. That I long for in my life and in the life of this church. So what does this mean? Well, it means you can't separate the power of the Holy Spirit from the cross of Christ. Number two, that the Holy Spirit comes on his own terms and in his own way. Right? Like, there's no doubt what we just read. Like, this is God's, this is God's doing. A rushing wind, tongues of fire, other speech in, in other languages, right? We do not control the Holy Spirit. He is totally sovereign, right? It says this in, in John chapter 3, verse 8. Look at this. It says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit, right? Like, we can't manufacture revival. We can't, right? I, and maybe you, you also, like me, grew up and it says, Wednesday night, revival. Really? Like, did you call ahead and get reservations, or... What's going on? No, the Holy Spirit comes. What we do as the people of God, we seek him. We seek his movement. We pray for his outpouring, right? Listen, we may never see revival. We may never corporately see revival. However, that does not mean we shouldn't pray for it. That does not mean that the Holy Spirit won't come and renew us individually and hopefully revive us corporately. We are longing to see that. We pray for revival. Listen, oftentimes charismatics think they have a, a, a corner on the market of the Spirit. Listen, everyone who professes faith and trust in Jesus Christ is filled with the Holy Spirit. Hear me clearly. That the moment you profess Jesus, you ask for his forgiveness of your sins, that salvation is found in him alone and not in your good works, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. 
However, non-charismatics, hear me. Right? I think that there can be an apathy toward the Holy Spirit or a misunderstanding, right? That we shouldn't plead for God to pour out his spirit more and more. No, we need that. That is a request and a petition of the people of God always. God, fill us. God, continue to fill us up and pour us out. Pour yourself out on us for your glory, not for power's sake, so that we might testify, as it says in Acts 2, to your mighty deeds, to your good works, not ours. Third, what this means is that God always keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises. Acts 2, there are I could spend the rest of our time going through the promises of God from the Old Testament and also in the New Testament, the Gospels, of the promises fulfilled at Pentecost, at the Holy Spirit coming. But I'm just going to go to verse 4. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Within that verse alone, there are like six promises fulfilled by God from Joel, from Jesus himself in the Gospels. You see this actually happening the way God said it would. And Sam talked about it. Jesus himself, Jesus himself said, listen, guys, and pull that up for me, Jim. Jesus himself said, listen, guys, it is better that I go away. Can you imagine how gut-wrenching the ascension must have been for the disciples? Those 120 going, listen, you died on the cross. You rose from the dead. You're now with us. Like, we can touch you. We can see you. Then he's gone. And remember it says that they stood there. (laughs) And they were thrown back to John, where Jesus says, no, 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 you have to remember, it's better. Why would it be better? Well, let's look at the text. Why would it be better that this day comes, that the Holy Spirit comes? Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, and the helper there, notice capital H, is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, right? Next. When the spirit of truth comes, right? Here's what Jesus, the promise he said, is being fulfilled. The spirit of truth is coming. He will guide you. You want a definition for the Holy Spirit here? This is a really good one. Maybe take a picture of the screen or write in your Bible. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. That's interesting. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. This is Jesus himself going. You want to know the role of the Holy Spirit? You want to know what the power of the Holy Spirit looks like? It looks like glorifying me. It looks like illuminating me. It looks like illuminating the person of redemption, Jesus Christ. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. That is what the Holy Spirit does to the church. That is what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. It takes what Jesus says, and we go, oh, I get it. We would never have that aha moment, hear me, apart from the Holy Spirit. So I remember sitting in a meeting, not at this church, at another one, and someone says, we need to make the day of Pentecost bigger than Easter. And I think I had a bodily, physical reaction in my chair there. Now that statement is wrong. But I would agree with one scholar I read this week that says that we only know about Easter because of the day of Pentecost. Think about it. The only way in which we understand the redemption of Jesus Christ that is found in his bodily resurrection is because the Holy Spirit opens our eyes. The only reason you know about Easter is because the Holy Spirit has come in you and given you sight to see Jesus. That's what he does. 
It's what he does when he comes in power and clarity. Fourth, that this day, Pentecost, that we're looking at in Acts chapter 2, launches the global proclamation of the gospel. This is where we see Acts chapter 1, verse 8, begin, where they are witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is the start that continues to this day. That 3,000, like I've said, souls will be added to the church at the end of this chapter. That as we follow the narrative through the book of Acts, we are going to see the spirit indwelt disciples carrying the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. How beautiful is the start of that global proclamation of the gospel that so many of us are part of, so many of us that were, all of us were recipients of, begins right here in Acts chapter 2 with the Holy Spirit falling and empowering believers to go and witness to Jesus. That starts here. You want to talk about a huge chapter? Yeah, it's a huge chapter. Tongues, yeah, they're there. But this is what it's about. And then lastly, that we need the Spirit's power to accomplish God's purposes. Listen, church, individual Christ follower, it is impossible apart from the Spirit's power in our life. Acts chapter 2 is the beginning of the church as Jesus Christ instituted it. It's the church where we see the church not being a building or a a location, but the church being a community of people redeemed by Jesus Christ, filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit for the purposes God has placed them. Listen, that might fire us up in just language, right? And for some of you, it doesn't because you're sleeping, okay? But for some of you, go, yes, listen, that's impossible apart from the Spirit. It's impossible apart from the Spirit filling us up to do God's work. You see these these hearers and even, I think, these observers of Acts chapter 2, right? The men and women who who were peering into the upper room, those who were standing there, right? The sensations that they saw, the rushing wind, the fire, all of these things would have visibly and also intellectually taken them back to the Scriptures, taking them back to the Old Testament, really taking them back to Genesis, the creation, the start, where God created by what? Breathing, speaking. We've taken them back, and I think the most clear picture of this is back to Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37 is is where we, we see this story, this true story, with the prophet of God, Ezekiel, standing there in a valley, A valley of bones. And God says to him, can these bones live? Right? He's in a graveyard. Can these people live? Can these dry, dead bones live, Ezekiel? And I love Ezekiel's response, right? He goes, you, O Lord God. Or another translation, you, sovereign God, you know. (laughs) He's not going, yes. And he's not going no, right? He's putting it on God, which is what we should do, by the way. He's going, you know. And what happens in that scene? God tells Ezekiel to prophesy that these bones can live, literally speak out. And listen, don't make a mistake to think that it's Ezekiel's breath. It's so Ezekiel's obedience. But what makes these dry bones live? Look at it in verse 14 of Ezekiel 37. And I, that's God, will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. 
Here we are in Acts 2. This is back in the prophecy in, 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 with the prophet Ezekiel in the Old Testament. And I will place in you your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord and I have spoken. And I will do it, declares the Lord. Leave that up. What are the two things we see here? That literally God breathes his breath, creation, and he puts what in them so they live? His spirit. That's exactly what's taking place here in Acts 2. And church, it is no different for what we need in our lives individually and corporately. Right? At salvation, can this dead heart live? Not apart from the spirit of the living God being given to us. Can this dead marriage live? Not apart from the spirit of the living God breathing. Can this lonely, can this anxiety, can this depression, can this apathy, can this sleepy, powerless faith, can this career that seems to be going nowhere that I don't understand, can this sin that keeps creeping up, can it actually be defeated? Not apart from the spirit of the living God. Not apart from the power of God coming true and alive in your life. It can't. But here's what we see in Acts 2. God gives the spirit. Here's what we see in Ezekiel 37. God breathes and bones live. So Sam, can we sing fullness again? Maybe? <laughs> I'm putting him on the spot. Right, we sang a song about Acts 2. And maybe you got it, maybe you didn't. But here, listen to me. I was down there before service. And while we're singing, I'm going, God, what do you want us to pray for? What, what, what do you want us to ask? And he said, ask for me. Ask for my spirit to come in a new way. Ask for my spirit to come in you individually. Kyle, not, I'm, not even just, I'm being selfish here. That I'd pour myself out upon you in a new way. That those dry bones in your life would live. Right? Those things that have held you captive for so long, those shackles would fall off. Listen, that's impossible apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen, church, I want that. We need to be a church praying for revival, praying that God revives us, right? In hope that we see it. Hope that we see God's hand move in a mighty and a powerful way. But listen, when we call out to him, he's faithful to answer. And if he gives us revival, praise God. But I know here's what he always does. He brings life. He brings freedom. He brings renewal. He brings hope. Every time. Listen, we're not looking for a manufactured experience. We're not looking to try to manipulate God's hand to do something. No, we're looking for God to show up. We're looking for the presence of the living God to be more in our lives than it is so that we might go from here as people who are, yes, set free, but as people who go out of here declaring the good deeds of God. That's what you see in Acts 2. So will you stand with me? Church, that's, that's what we want. That's what we want more than anything for our lives and for this faith family is to see a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit. To see God's Spirit release in this place lives of freedom and joy. 
Marriages that are walking in confidence. Families that are overcoming issues that have been generational because the power of the Holy Spirit came and he fell. I I need that. I'm sick of going through the motions and being apathetic and having a sleepy faith. Anybody else? I want the Holy Spirit. I want the Holy Spirit to come in power. Listen, he's in us if you're a believer. Now let's seek him. Let's seek him. Father, we, sometimes we don't know the words to articulate, so it's better to sing lyrics to a song. So God, we pray now these lyrics. Pour yourself, pour your spirit out upon us, upon me. God, shake the numbness, the apathy, the sleepiness from my heart that steal and rob affections and zeal for you. Holy Spirit, do point to truth, the truth of Christ in my life, how easy I forget it. God, I pray for us as a community, Lord, that we would be hungry to see you move in might and in power, that we'd not be looking for some experience, we'd not be looking for something that that man or or woman can manufacture, but we be looking for the true spirit of the living God to move in our midst. Because just like Acts 2, it's going to be unmistakable. God, we long to see your unmistakable presence in our lives and in our church. God, because in your presence, there's freedom. In your presence, there's joy. In your presence, there's salvation and redemption. Lord, apart from your presence, we have nothing. We are nothing, oh God. So fill us up. God, for someone in here this morning, fill them the first time through salvation in Jesus Christ that they might know the joy that comes from your presence. God, for those of us who know you in this room, oh God, let us be quick to come to you pleading, pour out. Give us more of who you are. We'll take all the gifts. We'll take all the things that you offer that you want for us. God, so that we might more boldly testify to who you are. Not so that we could revel in gifts or we could lift up any church name, but we want to lift up the name of Jesus. Spirit, fill us for that purpose. Send us out with that kind of calling and burden to witness to Jesus. People full of your spirit for your glory, God. God, I love you. I thank you for this church. I thank you for the journey you have us on. May we be faithful to walk it out as you call us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.